Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. It's good to see everybody this morning. I've got a couple things to uh, work through. Uh, First thing is, uh, let me bring a verse up on the screen, Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The scripture reads this way, I'll tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, amen? When you read that and you think about uh, the way that we do church in America in particular, Jesus says, I'll build the church. The next verse I would think Jesus would talk about is heaven, right? Because the way we think about church, we think of it as the introductory course of eternity with Jesus in heaven. He says, I'll build the church. And then immediately he starts talking about hell, a, a distance, eternal separation from God. The way that the church in America operates, you would think it's, I'll build the church and the gates of heaven will open up to you. But in reality, he says the gates of hell. And what he's talking about is that the minute that the church is created, it becomes an army that is looking at the gates of hell, the obstacle between people knowing God and being connected to him. And immediately they are focused on connecting to people who are separated from God. It is our tendency as a church not to focus on people who are eternally separated. It's our focus and our tendency to focus on people who we have here. Instead of advancing towards hell, we tend to retreat towards heaven. And so it's our job to remind ourselves that we want to focus on people who are separated from God. It's with that in mind that we want to start a a new series called House of Prayer, uh, a house of prayer of all nations. Uh, It's our desire that people who are far from God would know God. And so in order to do that, we are also doing an all nations initiative. Uh, Next year, we want to be able to have three things. We want to have a better location. I know we love this and we don't and we don't, Uh, but we want a more strategic location Secondly, we want to focus on more outreach. Uh, If you were here during our um, Atlantic Annex that we were here, we were reaching out to people. And unfortunately, uh, the last two years, we have not really been able to be focused on outreach because honestly, we've been focused on survival, trying to find new locations and things of that nature. So we want to do outreach. And the third thing we want to do is we want to focus on youth initiatives, youth ministry. We want to connect to more teens and more youth. So those three things are vitally important to us. If you go to allnations.nyc, you will be able to contribute to those efforts. Uh, Our hope is is that we do this campaign for the next two months. We want to raise $65,000. That's for rent and the resources to do those initiatives. Uh, And we want you to not only buy in financially. Uh, We are going to be creating service opportunities for everyone here because One of the things that um, I've talked to a lot of people and they say, hey, I want to do more. I want to do more in the church. I want to do more in the community. This is your time. We're going to have a lot of opportunities for people to serve, for people to give and for people to sacrifice. So if you go to All Nations Initiative, if some of you might have uh, finances that you want to give, 
Some of you might have stock options that you want to give. Uh, those, thank you, Leon. <laughs> for, all, for all those things that you want to do, we have a lot of different options. Um, but at the end of the day, this is not about us trying to build a church. This is about Jesus building his church. And we don't want to get comfortable with the people we have. We do not want to be a couch. We want to be a launching pad. We want to reach people who are far from us. And so in order to do that, we ask that you would pray with us on this initiative and then pray with us as we get ready for our message. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you, even now, you'd give us a fresh vision of how you want to reach people. God, would you extend to us a clear vision with your church? Would you allow us to fight for the lost? Would you keep us in mind as we are wanting to set the table for those who are not here yet? Lord, would you identify a location that makes sense for our church? For all the outreaches that we want to do, God, would you create the strategy? Would you create the opportunity? Would you raise up the resources? And then for teen and teens and youth, God, we pray, Holy Spirit, that even now you are setting an atmosphere for people to have a door open and their hearts will be pricked. So even now, God, would be a church that prays for the lost, that is reminded of those who are separated. Father, we pray that we would just always consider you. Would you bless this All Nations Initiative? In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you were here last week, we, we talked about how our church tends to fall into several categories, the types of people that we have in our church. We said that we have transplants, wanderers, we have slide backers, and then we have foreigners. Transplants are people that you came from a good church and now you decided you want to come to a good church. Wanderers are people who were confused and they were kind of in a bad situation, but now they want to come to a better situation. You came out of something toxic, you were hurt, you were lonely, and now you're at a church that you hope is better for you. And then there are slide backers, and those are people who you backslid in college, you backslid when you came to New York, and now you're sliding back into the house of God, and we praise God for you. But there's a fourth group we talked about, and those are foreigners. Those are people that did not grow up in church. They don't know the Bible. They don't know when to raise their hands. They don't know the songs. They don't know the people. They didn't have a praying grandmother. They don't come from a praying culture. They don't know all the things about church. But they do have a desire to know God. And one of the things that we can do as a church is we can get comfortable with gaining people who have grown up in church or come from a very churched culture. And one of the things that I am convinced of is that the generations are changing and we're going to try to keep shaking the tree of people who have had grandmothers and cultures praying for them and that tree will run dry. For the most part, everyone in here, for the most part, is coming from a legacy of prayers, a legacy of intercession. And that legacy will change because the culture is changing and people are changing and God is not something you just naturally do now. And for the church of Jesus Christ to continue to exist, we must focus on foreigners and fight for them. We must have a space where people who have not come up in the ways of God have a space. And let me tell you this, it is the church's natural proclivity to forget about those who are the furthest away from God. Wow. 
It is, our, it is the church's natural proclivity to think about people that we know. So if we put a poppin' Instagram out there and we put some good music on there and we create a little bit of atmosphere, people will come because, you know, they, they want to find some friends when they get to New York or they, or they were wandering in church and now they want to find something better and we'll be a cooler church than the one you had before. And I'm saying that that well will run dry over time. And we don't want to be a cooler church than the one before. We want to be a reaching church. A church that reaches people that did not know God, that didn't have those resources. The scriptures image, uh, give this imagery in Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, God says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah 56, God is saying, do not forget the foreigner. This has got to be a place where everyone feels comfortable talking to me. That was in Isaiah. Thousands of years later, Jesus is going to quote that verse and also a verse from Jeremiah. And he's going to be talking about the same problem they were talking about in Isaiah. And he's going to make this announcement about how the church, how the people of God are called to be a house of prayer. What you have to understand is that Jesus is going to show violent behavior. He does not turn water into wine. He doesn't do a miracle. He does not preach a sermon. He is enraged, and he starts a one-man riot in the temple. If you want to know God the Father's personality, look at Jesus. And if you want to know how Jesus feels about the foreigner and the person who is most distant, look at what he did in the temple. He could have done a lot of things, but he decided to display rage. Because what that tells us is he could have went to Caesar's palace and he could have just went off and says, I do not like what you're doing here, Caesar. And he could have flipped tables over in Caesar's palace. He could have went to some corrupt tax collector's house and said, I do not like how you guys are collecting taxes. He could have went to some criminal enterprise or he could have went to some religious temple and said, you guys are desecrating God. I'm going to come into your religious temple. He did not go to another religion. He did not go to the government. He did not go to a criminal enterprise. He went to the house of God. He walked right past all those places and he judged the people of God because what angers him the most is when his people forget about the world. He gets upset about criminality. He gets upset about injustice. He gets upset about all those things. But if you want to see our Lord get upset, see the people of God ignoring the people around them. That tells us about God. You see his personality. But it also tells us about us. Because thousands of years later, Jesus has to say the same thing that was said in Isaiah. And if that had to happen thousands of years later... Understand, Jesus is saying the same thing to us. Do not get comfortable with who you have. Fight for the foreigner. Advance the church. Push back the gates of hell. That's what makes him upset. And I know that we want to be pleasing to God. 
John chapter 2, it's incredible imagery in John chapter 2 because in John chapter 2, Jesus actually makes a cord, a whip, and he goes into the temple and he begins to uh, announce that his house should be a house of prayer. In Mark 11, as well as in Matthew, it shows that Jesus says the same thing. But if you look in the Gospels, what you're going to notice is these are actually two different instances. In other words, Jesus goes into the temple twice, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. The second time he does it, he does it in a way that we want to unpack today. Before I get into the picture of... uh, Jesus going into the temple, I just feel it's important to give some back history of why the temple was so important to God's people and why he felt he needed to put that kind of display of rage on. If you remember, uh, for those of you that were here during the uh, book of Genesis, when we were in the book of Genesis, Genesis 22 and 14, Abraham ends up sacrificing a ram. He was going to sacrifice his own son, but he ends up sacrificing a lamb. And on Genesis 22 and 14, he says, on this mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. If you guys remember that story, it was Mount Moriah that he did that sacrifice on. If you remember, God had told him that you are going to be a blessing to all the nations. Right after he does that sacrifice on that mountain, God blesses him. And right after that, right after he does that sacrifice, this is what the Lord tells him. He says in in verse 18, after verse 14, he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring, stars of the heaven, sands in the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates um, uh, of his enemies. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. On this mountain, you see a sacrifice, and then you hear God saying, you're going to be a blessing to the nations this very mountain, Mount Moriah. Years later, 900 years later to be exact, David comes along, and when David wants to sacrifice to the Lord, he decides he wants to go to a mountain, Mount Moriah. He ends up purchasing Mount Moriah so that he could do sacrifices to the Lord. First Chronicles 21 talks about how he purchased this mountain unto the Lord. So you see Abraham sacrificing on Mount Moriah. You see David purchasing Mount Moriah. Six years later, after David purchases Mount Moriah, Solomon then builds this majestic temple. You can look in 1 Kings chapter 7 to look at all the details of the temple. It is, it is laced with gold. The ornaments are out of control. It, it's, it's built in such a way that it's a monumental feat. The people feel as if we have reached the height of our relationship with God because of the size of the temple. It becomes the pinnacle of their faith, this temple. The people begin to leave God. They become apostate, but they still keep the temple. God allows them to be judged by Babylon. When they, are bab- when they are judged by Babylon hundreds of years later, they are taken into captivity. After this captivity into Babylon, there is this powerful moment where they return from captivity back to Jerusalem. They decide 
God prophesies to them to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel would then allow them to build the temple. So in 80, I mean, I'm sorry, in 515 BC, the temple, second temple is now built. Ezra 615 also talks about this second temple being built. So temple gets built, temple gets destroyed, temple gets built, the people keep fighting for the temple. And then you have this series of historians who come along, these warriors. You have Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes and he desecrates the temple. He puts the god of Jupiter into the temple. He puts a pig in the temple to desecrate the temple. The people are offended. So Judas Maccabees gets raised up. And he now begins to fight for the temple. Judas Maccabees comes and under him, they were still being apostate, still being in false religion, but they fight for the temple and they get the temple back. Temple worship begins to be revived. And then in 20 BC, Herod comes, King Herod comes. Not a believer in God, but essentially someone who wanted to build the temple. So he takes this desecrated second temple and rebuilds it now. In a sense, it was a third temple. He does an overhaul and expansion, and the temple takes 84 years to build. The people build the temple, dedicate the temple, and still leave God. And in their heads, they're like, we can do what we want because we got the temple. And the temple began to be the center of their affection because we built the temple. And so Jesus comes on the scene in Mark 11, and it says in verse 13 of Mark 11, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Many scholars believe that when Jesus sees this fig tree that has leaves on it, but no figs, it was him prophetically saying in the same way that my people have a temple, but no fruit. He says, may you never be uh, eaten from again. And in the same way, we never see a temple built again because in the next six years, the temple is destroyed and we never see a temple built again. What was God doing? He is trying to remove this imagery of thinking a temple defines our worship. He is also going to show them the power of what a temple does and how it creates this cultural feel like we just have ourselves. And so he speaks towards this fig tree. After he curses the fig tree, it's after he curses the fig tree that now he walks into the temple. It says in Mark 11, 15 and 16, and then he, he comes to the temple in Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
It's just kind of this amazing moment that Jesus is in what you call the court of Gentiles when he does this. At the top of Mount Moriah, you would have had what's called the Naos. That's the Holy of Holies. And up at the top of this Holy of Holies, you would move your way down and you'd be in what's called the court of priests. From the court of priests, you would have the court of men. From the court of men, you'd have the court of women. From the court of women, you'd have the court of Gentiles. Jesus did not go to the Naos of the Holy of Holies, though he could have because he's the high priest. He did not go to the court of priests. He did not go to the court of men. He did not go to the court of women. He went directly to the court of Gentiles. And in the court of Gentiles, there is a mall, a bazaar, vendors. And the people of God at the time decided, as long as we've got the priests, and as long as we've got the men, and as long as we got the women, we can use the space that was made for Gentiles for whatever we wanted. Because what was actually happening was priests needed a side hustle. So what they would do is when someone would come and they wanted to sacrifice an animal, the priest at his own discretion could say that the animal wasn't good enough. So they could have an unblemished animal, but the priest could decide that animal is still blemished. So they would have to do an animal exchange at his prices. It's like when you go to Disney World and you got to pay $5 for water, that kind of thing. They would do a markup on an animal because you'd have to get their animals in order to sacrifice unto the Lord. The the animals there would cost in our day about 50 cents in order to purchase. The markup would be more like $4 when you get them in the temple. This was a scam, a scam of the highest proportions utilizing the fears and the pain of the people who felt furthest from God in order to lace their own pockets. I know you can't imagine that. (laughs) Not only would they use this for the means of buying a better animal, but when the foreigner would come, oftentimes there would be people from all over the world that would come to this temple Well, in order for the foreigner to come, they would need to be able to come into the temple and exchange their money from wherever there was. So they would also do a markup on the exchange of money. In addition to that, they would also do what they would call the temple tax. Just to walk into the temple, they would charge you money. A scam at the highest proportion. And then the worst of all, if you look back in, in the text, it says that he overturned the tables of the money changers, but it specifically says, it does not point out any other animal. It says, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. If you were to look in Leviticus chapter 12, you would see that in God's law, there was provision for the poorest people. They could not afford a lamb. They could not afford an ox, but the little bit that they could afford was a pigeon. So because of this little dove or pigeon that they would be able to buy for five cents. That meant that the people who were the poorest, most oppressed, and most marginalized were coming to God. But they would take those pigeons and they would extort the people who wanted the pigeons. 
and they would mark up the pigeons so that the poorest of poor would be sitting there wanting to give a sacrifice to God, but they couldn't afford it. And in essence, what they were doing was they were saying, you are valuable, but you're not. And God wanted to create a space where we do not create people of value by what they can contribute. And even as we are a church and we're wanting to raise funds, we want to do great things, every church can fall into the temptation of starting to point out people we think we can get the most out of and valuing them more. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus starts a one-man riot. In this bazaar, amongst these vendors, there would have been hundreds of thousands of people. Don't think a small group. Think scores of people. People moving around very loud, the smells of animal everywhere, money being exchanged. And in this loud space, Jesus walks in and begins to destroy the place. It says he flips over tables, he flips over chairs. And the scripture says in Mark 11 and 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus, in this very moment, takes this idea of his house and what has been happening in his house. And he completely changes the way that they've been seeing ministry. We wanted to start this series Because when you look there, it says Jesus was actively teaching them. He flips over these tables. He gets upset. But he begins to quote this scripture. Weren't we supposed to be a house of prayer? But more importantly, he doesn't say house of prayer. He says, my house. And I think that is what's so different, why he didn't go and look at all the other corruption in Jerusalem. The reason why he focused on the corruption in the people of God, because he says, this is my house. And how you treat his house says what you think about him. And he was most frustrated because we are the representation of God on this earth. And he's upset because you're making it seem like the people who are furthest, I'm not trying to reach them. You know, it's funny when the the, the scripture says, um, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, they won't be able to stand it. The gates are this picture of a barrier from people who are separated from God. So there's this gate up, there's this obstacle. 
And what the church is supposed to be doing is advancing itself towards the obstacle in order to get the people. But if I ask your friends why they don't come to church, they're not going to say Jesus. Guess what they're going to say? Church. So here's the crazy part. The church is supposed to be bashing through the obstacles. Meanwhile, the church is the obstacle. The number one reason people don't go to church is church. So what we have to do is decide that there will be days when the temperature isn't popping in here and there'll be days when the song isn't right and, the, and, they, and maybe the sermon after you, you don't levitate after. Maybe, you know, maybe, 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 maybe things aren't, aren't, aren't going well, but the, the, the problem is, is that we've gotten into this consumer-based reality of church and now it's a house of comfort or it's a house of preaching or it's a house that has a great look. And he violently says this was never what it was supposed to be. You can go all the way back to Genesis. The minute he prayed on Mount Moriah, I told him he was about the nations. Abraham. This temple was always supposed to be for everyone. So we have to do whatever we can to always stretch ourselves out of comfort and into a space where people are feeling far. Haven't you had days where you felt far from God? Where your prayers, you're just like, I guess you're listening. I don't know. What's up? Are we, are we still good? And some of you have deep prayer lives. Some of you read the word quite a bit. Some of you have a legacy that you come from. Some of you have had people praying over you for years. Some of you have memorized scriptures. Some of you have been to church conferences. Some of you have all, y'all, some of y'all got libraries of Christian books. Some of y'all YouTube preachers all the time. Some of y'all have verses tattooed on your body. And what I'm trying to tell you is there are people that don't have any of those things. Imagine how they feel. They don't have the verses. They don't have the books. They don't have the legacy. They don't have the praying grandmother. Imagine how they feel. When they want a relationship with God, there's so many barriers. And we should never be a barrier. We destroy barriers. We push back gates. And that means if we're going to push back gates, if we're going to be amongst the court of the Gentiles, if we're going to reach the furthest, that means we have to stretch the most. It means we have to be uncomfortable. So when we talk about doing this initiative, it's, it's not about just money. I, I'll be to- totally honest with you. Like, you know, when we, when we decided to move here, decided, when we got kicked out, when we, when we came here, <laughs> when we ended up moving here, that just the months of preparation to be in the other location we were in was crazy. Right. Right. Then, uh, 
Did you hear that? <laughs> Those are sad. Then to all of a sudden just redo it. And I think, I think our people do a good job, but this is absolutely exhausting. And so what, what I'm trying to tell you is I understand why the church falls into this because surviving is hard enough. Just, just dealing with church. Just, I'm telling you, just doing this, making sure this thing works, making sure I can get up and prepare. Just doing this is hard enough. Just blessing people, the people of God is hard enough. So sometimes you're like, visitors aren't welcome. Sometimes, no, I'm saying sometimes you're just like, I'm good. Like, I'm good with the current reality we're in. Because I, my, I, I, I'm living, I'm doing fine. If this was just a job, I'm fine. I'm fine. But if this was a calling, then I have to look at how God feels about the church. If this is a career, I'm fine. I'm fine. But if this is a calling from the living God, then I can't be satisfied that I, I see different people here that, that I, that, you know, um, you, you do, you do a wedding for somebody, they have kids or somebody gets a job promotion and, you know, it's just like, man, we're a great family. And you feel this, I mean, you feel this, like, it's like, you feel like you're drawn into this space of comfort. And it's a very simple habit to fall into. What you fall into is the habit of just ministering to you, but not making you into ministers. Discipling you, but not making sure you're disciple makers. It is so easy to fall into that trap. And I'm saying that that's that what we have to do. These initiatives that we're rolling out, it's, it's, yes, the money is important. But it will come with great sacrifice. Lost people act lost. People far from God, they, they, they don't know all the things. It takes an extra level of work. And so, so that's why Jesus didn't just kick people out the temple. Look what it says in verse 17. It says he was teaching them. He was teaching them. I, I, I was just so struck when I was reading that this week. I was so struck by that. That Jesus did all that just so they could hear his voice and say, my house was never supposed to be this. I, um, you know, we're, we're always in talks for buildings and all this stuff and stuff. And how many of y'all know New York real estate is different? <laughs> this is different. I don't know another word to capture. It will, it will break your heart, okay? To say the least. There have been times, uh, anyway. So, um, but... But one of the things I was, I was talking to, I think it was Vic, and, um, you know, last year when we were, we were in the jazz club, um, I really felt like we had this accomplishment, like we found this building. And then all of a sudden, four months later, it was gone. And it's a shocking feeling. But I believe that was God's grace on us as a church. Because... The same issues that were in Israel are in us. There's a sense like, oh, we did it. 
Do you understand what happened? They built the temple. Listen, they built the temple and they stopped doing ministry. Because they're like, we did it. And they fell and they became apostate. And so think about that. They, they built the temple and they stopped worshiping. They built the temple for worship. They build the temple and stop worshiping. So there is something about building this edifice that almost becomes like a monument. And you begin to worship the edifice. Now, we want to find a great space, but this is all I'm saying. I think then it is strategic that Jesus says, I'll build the church. I think Jesus strategically got them out of thinking that they would build it. And unfortunately, this word church was because of the Roman Empire was erroneously a word, a German word, Kirch, was placed in uh, the text so that people began to interpret the word church as a place, as a building. But the Greek word ekklesia is a congregation. And really, this word shouldn't say church. It actually should say congregation. Because it is intended to be, and William Tyndale actually fought for the word ecclesia, and they burned him at the stake. Whole other conversation. But, but the point is, is that the word church is not supposed to be there. It really should be congregation, because the imagery of a congregation, you think about people gathered, not a place. And what Jesus was doing, and what we must realize, is that the church is a sacred people, not a sacred place. And what we fight for is the people. And the initiatives that we will have is all about the people. And so it's with that that I, I want to um, I want to invite you into um, doing ministry with us next year. And I, I want to do that in such a way where um, we want to we want to raise funds. We want to do more activity. We're going to invite you into serving opportunities. Um, But if this is kind of the 80-20 rule, where 20% of people do the work and then 80% of people benefit, it'll look great, but you'll miss out on the opportunity. These opportunities are intended to raise you up as ministers and leaders and reaching people who are, won't naturally come into our space. And so we ask that you would partner with us. We ask that you would pray. But we ask that you'd be reminded of Jesus, how he goes into this temple and he says, this is my house. My house was always supposed to be a place for people who are far. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that even now you would remind us of your grace towards us and your love for us. Holy Spirit, even now, we pray that you would build your church. You, you build the church. You build the church. Lord, we pray that the church would always be an army of people who want to reach those who feel furthest from God. May, us, may we never be just a couch for the comfortable. But let us always be a launching pad of people who want to fight for those who feel foreign and those who feel separated in Christ's name.
We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.